Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, Linda Jacobson, a senior writer at The 74, joins us to discuss the growing Zoom in a Room phenomenon, where students attend in-person classes with a virtual teacher. Then, on the Research Minute, Amber discusses a sobering new study that finds summer school interventions intended to regain pandemic-era learning loss had a minimally positive effect. All this and more on the Education Gadfly Show. This is the Education Gadfly Show. Yeah, and ironically, proximity doesn't mean the teacher that's close. <laughs> exactly. Her, right? That's <laughs> the, the opposite. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome our special guest for this week, Linda Jacobson. Linda, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Linda is a senior writer at The 74. And I have to say, Linda, I have enjoyed having reporters, education journalists on more frequently. You know, I I do enjoy getting interviewed by you, but I think I I actually enjoy interviewing you even more. So that's going to be fun. We, uh, We want to have you on because you wrote a great article in The 74 recently about Zoom in a room making its comeback. Let's talk about that on Ed Reform Update. Okay, so Linda, the uh, the article at the 74 was exclusive data fueled by teacher shortage. Zoom in a room makes a comeback. It says, as students return to school, the much derided practice of in-class virtual instruction has spawned a multi-million dollar, quote, boom industry. Now, As it is framed, there's a lot of people asking whether this is something that is actually good for kids. Let's explain what we're talking about here, right? My my understanding is a school can't find a teacher for one of its sections or classes, and so they hire a company who has a teacher working from his or her home or a call center somewhere far away, right? They get piped into that class, and, and then maybe there's an aide or some kind of substitute teacher there just to be a physical presence, but the teaching is done remotely. The kids are in person, but the teacher's not. Is, is that basically right? That is basically right. Yeah. I completely ran into the topic by accident because I was interviewing a a parent for a different story and she kept referring to her kid's proximity teacher. And I just kind of let it go. I didn't really know what she was referring to. and, And it came up again in the conversation. And I said, what is a proximity teacher? And <laughs> that was the beginning of, of my interest in this issue. Yeah, yeah. And ironically, proximity doesn't mean the teacher that's close. <laughs> exactly. To her, right? That's it's the, the opposite. That's, yeah, that's providing a teacher far away. So, I mean, g- give us a sense. Is this something that's happening a lot? You know, are there kids who are spending all day with these Zoom in a room teachers? Or is it something that's just filling in for these shortages when districts are desperate? What, what's your sense? I think it's happening a lot more than we realize. That was certainly what, what I discovered when you know we started to look at some spending data in districts and how many districts were using these companies. I don't think any students, for the most part, are spending their entire day. I really couldn't find any examples where elementary age students were with virtual teachers. So it tends to be for a specific class at the middle and high school level would be the far more common use of these. 
you know, I noticed back in June, I happened to be at the National Charter Schools Conference and I wandered through the vendor hall. I think I was looking for the coffee, which they had strategically placed at the very back. And I saw a lot of these companies in both for regular classroom teachers, you know, like you say, you know, okay, pipe in your science teacher, but also for all sorts of services related to special education, you know, speech therapy online, even uh, counseling, mental health supports, uh, you know, and, and look, some of it seems like you say, well, sure, there's going to be a whole bunch of people who may not want to work full time or they don't want to work at a school necessarily. They like to work from home and have a flexible schedule. And and this could be a way to to tap into that, you know, human capital potential that's out there, maybe retired teachers or or teachers that quit teaching when their kids were born. I mean, so when you think about it as as that, I mean, is it such a terrible thing? You know, we we I mean, I understand that that we have these terrible memories of Zoom in a room from the pandemic, but you know, if the alternative is to have a long-term sub or, you know, just uh, nobody at all, is isn't this better than than what kids might otherwise be getting? That's certainly what some districts will will say. And I interviewed a teacher who had to leave the classroom for some health-related reasons, but still wanted to teach. And this was sort of a, a renewed um, opportunity for her to, to keep teaching. Uh, she teaches high school math, I believe, and lives in Wisconsin and teaches kids in Milwaukee, you know, but remotely. I think the issues of the the problematic issues came up in in the reporting in terms of districts not being transparent with families about their kids' teacher being remote and the expertise of the aide, the assistant who is actually in the classroom. Uh, this one teacher that I interviewed said, best case scenario, she has maybe you know an apprentice teacher or somebody who you know, wants to teach in that field, uh, who's engaged in the lesson and is there to help answer kids' questions, as opposed to somebody who, and I certainly heard examples of this as well, somebody who's just sitting behind the desk and maybe on their phone, you know, and isn't really engaged in how the class is doing. And that could be the opposite extreme of, of what we're seeing. But I think on the ground and, you know, practically, Kids may not take it as seriously. You've got classroom management issues. You know, there were reports. Another way that I came across this was I, again, it was just sort of random. I was reading some school board minutes at a district in South Carolina, and the topic came up where a board member was saying, are we going to have to use these virtual teachers again this year? You know, how how long are we going to be doing this? And there were complaints from board members about kids getting up and walking out of the room and, you know, things like that. So I think on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, it can look very different from place to place. Yeah. And, and those are all, to me, very important issues, right? You got to tell the parents that this is happening, uh, though they're not going to be happy about it, probably, at least initially. And then if you're a student, I could also imagine, oh, my God, what if it's like first period and you're exhausted and you get yourself to school uh, you know, at the crack of dawn, only to have your teacher piped in remotely. I mean, those kids could be learning, just stay at home and learn remotely from that teacher too, right? I mean, yeah. it's, you know, we're, we've gotten used to the idea, especially in high school, that we have some courses available online, say advanced placement courses or foreign language courses that the school can't offer all of them. And, you know, with if, if the kids are motivated, big if, but, you know, especially maybe for the higher achieving kids, you know, you can make something like that work or, 
You can imagine some of the, uh, you know, university provided courses also that are fully virtual. Everybody's virtual and it's set up for that, right? But instead, this idea that we're going to have you there, we're going to have somebody in the room to babysit you. Uh, and then you're going to watch the screen, you know, perhaps not the best instructional opportunity. But again, compared to what? I mean, we know in our home state of Ohio, we hear these terrible stories from our, uh, our hometown of Dayton, Ohio, and the Dayton Public Schools, where there's there's schools where, you know, kids have long-term subs every single class period. It's just a horrendous. And so, you know, if that's the alternative, maybe this is a little bit better if you've got some folks that are well-trained. I have to say, though, Linda, I'm, what I didn't notice in your article, I would think the unions would be up in arms about this, uh, that this would they would see this as a way of undercutting their power. These districts hiring for-profit companies who bring in staff who I assume are not members of the union to do this teaching. Is, is that, has that been an issue? How, how are the unions not stopping this? The districts where I found this to be most in use were right to work states. And I did talk to one union in um, Memphis, Shelby, and their members were really didn't even know the extent to which it was being used in their own district. And I think that's because if it's scattered across multiple schools, you may have one teacher here, you know, one or two class periods here, and you don't see the totality of it. And so it may seem less less of an impact than uh, than it really is. Well, now that you've exposed it, and we noticed that some other reporters are now jumping on this story as well, I guess it won't be such a well-kept secret. <laughs> I guess not. And I and I agree with what you said about higher level classes. I mean, certainly we learned during remote learning that some kids do well remotely. And, you know, this could certainly be, you know, an option. And it is clearly for districts to deal, you know, with shortages when they can't find a, you know, highly qualified teacher. But who are the right kids for that fit? You know, I think is a question. That's right. And and we do, of course, worry that in general, this is going to end up hitting some of those districts that have less money, that are serving tough, you know, kids who are coming from tougher situations. And so it may be yet again, the poor kids and the kids of color who end up with the, the Zoom in the room when when their peers end up getting something. Yeah. Else. And I think that was the, the shift that we were trying to identify was that this wasn't unique situations. It was core instruction yeah. you know, for all kids. All right. Well, Linda, good stuff. Uh, important for us to know about and an important debate. I'd be curious what folks think. Is this uh, an innovation? You know, this we talked a little for a long time in the education reform world that we want to allow for different types of roles in our schools. You know, this is one of them. Uh, or is this just another race to the bottom? All right. Well, Linda Jacobson, senior writer at The 74. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Hi there, Mike. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I had an exciting week last week. You did? Tell me about it. I got to go to Santiago, Chile. That's right. And you said they're, they're, um, I was, I was very, my interest was peaked when you said they're really ahead of us in some aspects. I'm like, do tell. Yeah. Well, you know, this was for an annual education conference that they do, a, a center-right think tank and a university sponsor. Several Americans have gone down over the years, people that you would know, like, you know, Rick Hanushek and Harry Petrinos. But yeah, you know, they're famous in Chile for having this voucher system, which they've had for almost 40 years now. 
which is impressive. Something like, I think almost 60% of the kids go to a private subsidized school. So, and then, you know, the rest go to either traditional public schools or maybe a sliced, I think kind of like ours, maybe 10% of the wealthiest kids that tend to go to private private schools. So that has been well known, but they, in the last 10 years, have tried to implement a real accountability system as well. And what's ahead of us is that they use not only test scores, but also they they do have a, a measure of, soci- of uh, social and emotional well-being that is part of that classification system. Uh, they also do school inspections, you know, somewhat modeled off of what uh, the UK does with Ofsted. So, you know, it's a real effort to try to do both choice and accountability. Warms my heart. Now, that said, this is under attack right now. They, they've got a left-wing government. And literally, they have just appointed a communist as the education minister. Wowza. That's a problem. Yeah. So uh, it, it could always, you know, we, we may struggle with our leaders, but it could always be worse. Yes. Yes. Uh, we need to keep that in mind. Yes. But lovely, lovely people really learned a lot. And uh, was, yeah, it was super, super fun. Got the first time I ever was a part of instantaneous translation. People had little headphones they could wear and hear me in Spanish. So maybe someday I'll get to listen to that. I, I wonder uh, how, how my speech sounded in Spanish. Yes, very good. That is exciting stuff. All right. Well, back to the real world here. Back uh, to the real world. Tell us about the world of education research. Uh, we are going to learn about um, summer school. I thought this was a pretty cool study out from Calder. Gosh, we got 14 scholars on this one, including Tom Kane and Dan Goldhaber. They're looking into the impact of summer school on learning loss and the extent that it's making a dent in recouping all this lost student progress. They are looking at kids who attended summer school following the 21-22 school year. So just just one summer school across eight districts that serve about 400,000 kids total across seven states. Collectively, these districts serve about 56% of Black and Hispanic students, 55% of students on free and reduced lunch, which is higher in both cases uh, than the national average. The districts are in the Road to Recovery Project, which is a partnership between researchers and 11 districts. Again, just eight of the 11 provided data to participate in this study. All right, sample includes kids who were expected to enter grade one through grade eight in the fall of 2022. They were eligible for summer school based on some district-specific criteria that basically amounted to the kids who are most in need of summer school based on their, you know, prior test scores. They had NWA MAP growth scores for both spring 22 and fall 22 in reading and math. They counted students as attending summer school if they attended at least one day, uh, which, you know, it's kind of generous, but they also measure the dose of the program that students received, uh, looking at the average number of days to see how that impacted their outcomes. They tried to dis- uh, discuss the structure of these programs, but they were all over the map in terms of enrollment, number of days, number of hours, take-up rates. So most of these are averages, but obviously hugely vary uh, by program. They uh, allowed other kids to attend, even if they weren't most in need. They just, you know, they didn't, weren't too strict about if the kids wanted to come. They use a value-added model, estimate the effect of each of the summer school programs on map growth. They use, again, the previous spring is the baseline. The subsequent fall is the outcome uh, that they're examining. They control for all sorts of student demographics. They use school by grade fixed effects. 
And then they assume a linear relationship between the amount of time spent in instruction during summer school and the total average effect of the program. So then they can compute what they think kids should have gotten out of summer school. All right, I'm at the findings. Participation rates vary from 4.8 to 22.6%, with the average participation rate at 13%. To clarify, Amber, so that's of, of what? Of all kids or? Of, of the kids who were targeted to participate. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Participation rates are higher among students whose schools were the summer school sites. So if your school was, you know, where you had to go, 17% attendance rate. If your school was not one of the summer school sites, you had 11% participation rate. On average, I think I just said this, 25% of targeted students participated. So just a quarter of who we were trying to get to come to this. The districts offered between 15 to 20 days of programming between 45 minutes to two hours per subject. So the total hours ranged from 23 hours to 67 hours across the districts. And by the way, it's so funny. I felt like when I saw research recommends, like, you know, your dentist recommends, but anyway, research recommends a minimum of 75 hours per program. So these were quite, you know, they, they didn't quite reach what we would expect to see in summer school that other studies have shown that uh, you need in terms of the dosage. Headline finding a positive effect for summer school on math achievement, 0.03 standard deviation, but nothing on reading achievement. And then when they try to figure out where these positive effects on math are uh, being driven by, they find that it's mostly the upper elementary grades. The kids, I think, especially the fifth graders. Uh, and then they do this calculation just to kind of help people put all this in perspective. And they say that if we assume that districts have losses similar to those at the end of 22-23, summer programming closed approximately 2 to 3% of the district's total learning loss in math. But again, nothing in reading. This was ooh, depressing. At this rate, they said districts would need to deliver summer school for longer than five weeks with more than two hours of math instruction to every student for two to three years in a row, just to get back to pre-COVID math test levels. So we need to do more summer school and more things besides summer school. Uh, you know, wow, it is depressing. I, I, you know, I've seen some of the coverage of this study uh, and some of the back and forth on social media, and it's been interesting. I, I think it was Dan Goldhaber tried to make the case and said, hey, you know, at least we found some positive effects here, you know, but that's not nothing. Because you think back way back, 20 years back to the Supplemental Educational Services Program of No Child Left Behind, for those of you that remember that, this was a tutoring program, right, after school and on the weekends. And the challenge was, you know, it was only so many hours. And so it was hard to find impacts because, uh, you know, the tests weren't necessarily sensitive enough to pick it up. And it's, you know, what can you really expect from just a few hours of extra instruction? So here it is the same thing with the summer programming. But, oh, my God, 2 to 3% of their total learning loss, that's it. And and this is one of our big strategies. Yes, one of our big uh, strategies. 
Oh my goodness. No, it's that, that is just, a, I mean, look, I don't know how not to conclude that we've decided we're just going to write off this generation of kids. We're just not going to catch them up. That just seems to be what we've decided. And that's not good enough. Gosh, no, I know it's not. <sighs> wow. I mean, I don't know, Mike. I mean, what, what else should we be doing? I mean, you know, we talked about DC, gosh, they tried to do year round schooling. The politics of it just don't seem to, you know, render it possible in a lot of places. Oh, was that Richmond? Wasn't that Richmond? Richmond, yes. All right, Richmond, not D.C. Well, I have an idea. You know, I've had this idea for many years now, which is have a bunch of kids be in school an extra grade, right? I mean, this this notion that uh, just slow down the conveyor belt uh, and and let kids, if, if right now K-12 to is 13 years of school, we'll have 14 years of school, you know, and Rather than tap it on at the end, which I guess I hear some people talking about, you know, tack it on towards the beginning, you know, where when kids, you could still do a lot of good if you had a grade, I don't know, two and a half between second grade and third grade. I mean, because the basic notion that kids need more time is is still the right one, you know, and, and if you can make it more efficient by having it be small group tutoring and, you know, of course, with high quality instructors and high quality materials and all the rest. But some of it is just the basic math of needing more time. So in your mind, they just repeat the grade that they were in during COVID? Like, how would that even work? I mean, what I've been saying is, ideally, you just figure out a way to maybe spread out the material. You know, so you say instead of doing kindergarten, first and second grade, let's say over three years, you do it under over four years. You spread out the benchmarks that you have for those grades and you take more time with the assumption that, you know, again, some of these kids are way behind. And so you got more time to, to hit the benchmarks. And yeah, now, you know, this, this finding about reading, look, I, I don't think any of us were surprised that there were bigger learning losses in math than in reading. We think that reading isn't as much about what happens at school, right? Except for the phonics piece. A lot of it is about vocabulary and language that they're hearing in the home, the neighborhood. But it is depressing to say that even if you do have intensive tutoring, that's supposed to boost some of that stuff. That's not showing an impact either. Still not moving the needle. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I know we've had other, I've covered other studies that say, you know, the the research, I mean, the uh, reading test aren't any good, right? Maybe they're not measuring what they need to measure. And so I don't know, Mike, maybe there's some truth to that. And the Edie Hirsch argument that just says that, you know, reading is really about knowledge and it builds slowly, you know? So you're not going to see much of an impact over the course of four weeks in terms of what kids know about a broad range of topics in science and history and geography and civics and everything else. But, but maybe cumulatively, it has an impact. Uh, bottom line, we need to do a lot more than we're doing, but thank goodness for, for Dan and Tom and the rest of these folks who are studying this stuff. At least we know something about how things are going on. And now it's up to us to try to create a sense of urgency out there. To- yeah. I mean, I, I, kudos to them for really ringing the alarm bell loud. I mean, the last sentence literally says that if we fail to deliver more than we're doing, it will have dire consequences for our students and society, you know? Yep. No, no mincing words. All right. Well, I got, I got nothing positive to say about that. I know. I know. All right. Well, Hey, that is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week, I'm Amber Northern. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.